You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, I'm glad you guys are here. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 7? That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 7. All the way in verse 36 is where we're going to start. And um, man, if if I'm honest with you, this this semester of looking at the book of Luke and just opening the Bible and seeing what happens next has been overwhelming to me. And, And this week, like I sincerely found myself thinking as we've looked at Jesus week after week and and this story in particular, I I, I found myself thinking this, um, how is it that everyone doesn't follow Jesus? Like I sincerely thought that. Now I know there's a lot of reasons and if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's reasons for that and there's complexities to that and you have a story and you have your context. But when you look at the Bible and you see who he is, it kind of begs the question, how does everyone not see how awesome he is? Like it's overwhelmingly clear that he has the answers to our deepest questions and he is good and he is worthy and it's just, it's just drawn me in again and again. But the truth is so many people still aren't interested and still don't believe. And so I started thinking, why? Why is that the case? And here's my, here's, here's my progression of thought. So go with me for a second. Uh, if you've ever been around little kids, uh, you know that most people look at little kids and say they're so sweet, they're so cute, they're so fragile, they're so awesome. I know I jokingly call them little sinners because they are little sinners. But also they're cute and fragile and great. Uh, today's actually my daughter's birthday. She turned four years old today. She woke up and put on a happy birthday shirt and like came into our room at 630 and she was stoked. Um, and my wife put out streamers. It was awesome. So today she's not giving high fives. It's high fours. It's her thing. She turned four. Uh, but she just had a birthday party and like little kids are everywhere. And all I did for the birthday party is rake a bunch of leaves in a pile. And they played. It was the cheapest party ever. Like four-year-olds go play in the leaves. And they did it. And it was awesome. And you look at little kids and you go, man, little kids, like they have their whole lives ahead of them. They haven't ruined their life yet. And, and you look at them and you, you, you feel so excited for them. And then something happens. I don't know when it happens, maybe late elementary, middle school, something. And you start to see kids classified as good kids and bad kids. I don't know how this happens. I don't know who's in charge of this, but you start to see good kids and bad kids. So a show of hands, if you were a self-identified bad kid in middle school, would you raise your hand? Not many of you. Okay, if you were, uh, you're trying to work on that, (laughs) praying about it. If you were a good kid growing up, would you raise your hand? A lot more of you. You guys are the worst. You ruin everything. So I, I don't know how this happens, but something along the progression of childhood and growing up, you, you get good kids and you get bad kids. And around the same time of growing up, like you start to tell little kids stories about Santa Claus and how he makes a list and checks it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice. And, and he's interested in your morality. And then if your kid grows up in the church, like your teachers at church tell your kids stories about uh, the time that God took all the animals and put them on a boat and then killed everybody else who was bad. (laughs) It's called Noah's Ark. And and so these little kids are growing up being told, maybe you're good, maybe you're bad, and Santa Claus and Noah's Ark, and somehow they're connected in this story in my mind. Santa Claus and Noah's Ark uh, are responsible for all this. And so you get to a place where maybe it's in high school into college and you actually start making some, some bad decisions. And you have some moral failure in your life and you do some things that you regret and you, you feel shame and you feel guilt. And then as you get older, you start to ask yourself the question, how do I deal with this guilt and the shame and this failure? And that to some degree is the dilemma of humanity. And I submit to you, that is also the dilemma of Christianity. 
The dilemma of Christianity is what do we do with our shame and our guilt and our failure? And does God have anything to say about that? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, that puts pressure and fear on us. Because what if we thought, honestly thought, maybe there is a God and maybe I have fallen short of his standard. Maybe there is a God and I'm going to be held accountable for my actions in this world. Maybe there really is a God and, and I don't think that who he is and who I am could ever be reconciled. So that upbringing leads us to a place where we find ourselves with guilt and shame and failure, and we don't know what to do with it. And so there's lots of self-medication kind of stuff. There's yoga. There's lots of really helpful things. But at the end of the day, there's still the ache, and there's still the hole, and there's still the question. And then someone invites you to church, or someone tells you about God, or someone tells you about Jesus, and you can't even imagine that God would have anything to say about your guilt and your shame and your fear. And so in that moment, you steal from yourself the, the central message of Christianity. And you steal from yourself the, the glorious good news that God tries to offer us. And you self-sabotage and you hijack the message. And then you come in week after week and you hear us talk about it and you still can't believe it. But if you're willing today to open yourself up and say, I do have guilt, I do have shame, I do have failure. God, God what do you have to say about that? then I think all of us can find ourselves walking out radically changed by an overwhelmingly good news, an overwhelmingly uh, truthful thing. So starting in Luke chapter 7, we're going to enter into a story uh, where Jesus is going to help us answer that question. So this is a story about Jesus having dinner at a Pharisee's house, starting in verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's a euphemism, lived a sinful life is a less offensive way of saying she's likely a prostitute in the story. But she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, then he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. And then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, Jesus has a disciple named Simon Peter. This is the Pharisee who's throwing the party. His name is Simon. So Jesus looks at Simon and says, I have something to tell you. And Simon responds, tell me, teacher. Now, a few verses ago, Jesus was a prophet, but now that all this has gone down, Simon has demoted him to teacher. Like, you're not a prophet anymore if you don't know what's going on right behind you, bro. Uh, so I'll say, yeah, teacher, what do you have to say? Verse 41. And Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. But neither of them, underline this in your Bible, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, can you, can you feel this? He replied, I know what you're doing to me, Jesus. <laughs> I suppose, since you're pressuring me, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, which is a little socially awkward. He looked at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He looks at the woman and said, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, yet she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a remarkable story. Remarkable story showing us the character of Jesus. And the story involves three people, a Pharisee, Jesus, and an unrighteous prostitute. And so the first person in the story is Simon the Pharisee who throws the party. And something you have to know about the Pharisees is they were very self-righteous. They were very self-righteous. And Pharisees were dedicated, lifelong dedicated, to maintaining their status as key religious leaders. So inviting Jesus to Simon's house was a calculated move so that he could be seen in the community as even more of an elite religious leader. Like he could go back to the, the, the place of Pharisees later and be like, man, I had Jesus at my house last night. I know you guys know I'm like up and coming in the Pharisee ranks. Jesus stayed at my house last night. He has calculated bringing Jesus to his house, but he's self-righteous. He's operating as though he's earned God's approval. So if you were to ask the question, what is under the sin of self-righteousness? Like what's beneath the sin, the sin behind the sin? uh, I think it's pretty clear that that Simon, though he was self-righteous, he really had the sin of desiring to be in control. He wanted to have power. He wanted to be autonomous. He was self-fulfilling. He wanted to be his own authority. He wanted to stand before God in his own right, in his own righteousness, and say, God, I did this. And I think this is a real temptation for all of us, because all of us look at our shame and our sin and our failure, and we see it as unrighteous. And the temptation in our life is to look at our unrighteousness and respond with self-righteousness. God, I'll fix it. God, I'll take care of it. God, I know I used to do that, but look at me now. I'm going to make a list and never do it again. I know I did this. I came from a pretty unrighteous background with brokenness in my life, divorce in my background, sin, darkness, shame, lots and lots of unrighteousness in my background. I go to Christian college. I start living with Christian guys, and we decide to ourselves we are going to be the equivalent of spiritual Navy SEALs. And so we make a huge list of all the things we're never going to do again. It's called the don't list. Don't, 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 don't. We had this manifesto, and all of us cut our finger and bled on the document. And we licked uh, an envelope and put it in there, and then we put circles of candles, and we sat Indian, like with our legs crossed, and we held hands, and we sang and said, we will never sin again, oh God. And it didn't last a day. (laughs) It didn't last a day. And I bet some of you who live together do that. And the guys I disciple, I tell them, the gospel is not the gospel of don't, 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 don't. The gospel is the gospel of done, 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 done. Those are fundamentally different things. And if we don't get the spirit of Christ leading us to have discipline, leading us to have wisdom, we misunderstand the whole thing. And we look at our unrighteousness and we spawn with self-righteousness and it's broken and it's dangerous. It's not just broken, it's dangerous because these Pharisees, believed in their heart that they were the men who had access to God. And further than that, they were the men that allowed others to have access to God. To say it as plainly as possible, the Pharisees walked the world basically saying, if you want to get to God, you have to go through me. Can you understand how big of a problem that is to Jesus If you're a Pharisee walking the world going, if you want to get to God, you've got to go through us and you've got to do all this stuff. The son of God is present going, actually, if you want to get to God, you've got to go through me. Can you see how these two people are at odds? But this Pharisee throws a party and a woman comes and she's uninvited. And so if this self-righteous Pharisee is operating with control, this unrighteous woman is operating out of control. 
And I know I just read to you the story, and I know you heard the story, uh, but, but I have to ask you, did you feel the story? So I want you to feel this for a moment. This woman knows that there's a massive religious party happening, and she's not invited because the people that are invited are religious uh, elites. They are religiously powerful. They are spiritually set apart. She recognizes very clearly that in, in contrast to them, she is an outsider and she doesn't belong. And she knows that when she looks at these people. And, and can you just feel this in the story? She doesn't care that all that's happening. She decides she's going to sneak in anyways because it's a party that's big enough that leaves the front door open and people are coming and going. And so she sneaks in and maybe stands against the wall and just tries to blend in for a little bit before she makes her move to get to Jesus. And she's sort of blending in and maybe there's people that see her and they know who she is. She's a woman of the city, a woman of the night. She's a prostitute. And there's probably people that see her and wonder, what are you doing here? Do you not know what's happening here? This is spiritually elite. Jesus is among us. What are you doing here? We know who you are. We know what you're like. You don't belong here. And just as an anecdote, I hope that Resonate Church is never a place that looks around the room and sees a sinner in our midst and asks the question, what are they doing here? Because that person, whoever they are, maybe they are uninvited and maybe they feel like an outsider, but maybe they're here to get to Jesus. And that should be the primary thing religious people are about, but that's not what's happening in the story. So this woman hides against the wall and she waits for everyone to sit down and finally everyone sits down. And in that world, you didn't like sit on your, uh, in a chair with a tall table. It was really low tables. And so you kind of leaned on your left elbow and leaned forward and your feet were behind you. And that's just how it worked. And so this woman decides, I'm going to make my move. And as she gets closer to Jesus, maybe she recognizes and starts to feel overwhelmed. Like, man, he's holy and I'm not. He's perfect and I'm not. He's set apart and I'm not. He's powerful and I'm not. He's elite and I'm not. What am I doing here? And as she gets closer and closer and closer, she gets overwhelmed. And she starts to cry so heavily that her tears are falling on his feet to such a degree that they can wash his feet she obviously didn't plan for this because she didn't bring a towel. So she starts to improvise and she pulls down her hair and starts drying off his feet with her hair. But she didn't prepare for this. But she's brokenhearted and she's overwhelmed. The great reformer Martin Luther in his commentary on this passage calls this, uh, calls this moment uh, heart water coming out of her eyes. There was water from her heart coming out of her eyes. It was brokenheartedness. And in this moment... This is her public acknowledgement before the most judgmental, shaming, condemning, self-righteous religious men. She publicly acknowledges, yes, I'm a sinful woman. Yes, I have deep regret in my life. But if anybody can help me, it's got to be this guy. And so she goes to him. And she, she's uncomfortable. She, she's overwhelmed. And she makes a scene. And honestly, this is uncomfortable for everybody that's there. This is the equivalent of spiritual oversharing. Have you been in that small group where that person starts sharing and you're like, okay, that's enough. And they're like, no, they keep going. Oh no, now they're crying. Oh, now they're standing and crying. Oh no, they like pulled out a journal and now they're reading from their journal. Oh God, stop. Like never, like everyone averts their eyes and they're like, never, who invited that person? Like, do we not have security at Village? This is terrible. Who's in charge of this place? It's socially inappropriate what happens in the story. But here, here's what's interesting. I, I think it's important for us to know that, that where God is really moving, there is usually inappropriate social action. Where God is truly moving, his spirit is going forward, there is usually a sense by which normal social interactions go away. 
We've told you the story multiple times over the years about uh, a drummer in our band who one Sunday didn't show up for church and we're calling him and he doesn't respond. It's because on the Saturday night before church, he got blacked out drunk. Terrible decision. He was hanging out with some friends and they like left him on the side of the road. Didn't even give him a ride home. He got picked up by the police and got taken to the hospital and overwhelmed. And that next Wednesday in Village, after we ate our, ate our meal and sat in the circle to start talking, this brother stood up and you're like, why are you standing? And he starts to share what's going on and it is inappropriate. But the spirit of God was moving in his life and he repented to the church and he repented before God and it looked inappropriate. Socially didn't make sense. We've told you stories about couples who lived together before they knew Christ and they found out who Christ was and they recognized that, that God's design for, for their relationship isn't to live together until they're married. And then once you're married, you live together and you have sex and it's amazing. Married people, amen. Unmarried people, write that down. <laughs> you didn't even come here. For, that's not even the sermon, but pay attention. And so they see what God has done in their life and they, they decide to move out. This has happened multiple times and they have to go back to their old roommate and knock on the door and be like, uh, hey man, can I live here again? He's like, oh man, did you break up with your girl? He's like, actually, no, it's the best it's ever been. We're still together. I would like to save up for an engagement ring. It's going awesome, but can I sleep on the couch? It's socially inappropriate. <laughs> But the spirit of God is moving. Those guys don't care. I know guys who've gone to their bosses at work and went to their boss and said, hey, could I get transferred to another location? Because there's a church that's, planting, that's being planted there from our church. And I want to move to that city. and I want to be a part of it. And their, their boss is like, what? Like the only way you can move there is getting a demotion. And he's like, I'll take a demotion. I don't care. I want to go and be a part of what God's doing in this other city. It is socially inappropriate when the spirit of God is moving. It makes no sense to the world. Giving away lots of money is socially inappropriate. It makes no sense to the world. But that usually means that God is doing something in the story. But the religious people in the story, they get mad. Specifically, Simon, he gets mad because what's happening in the story is not just socially inappropriate. What's happening in the story is, is it's almost like Simon is ashamed of Jesus. He's like, man, I, I thought you were better than that. I thought you knew better than that. But apparently this woman's like crying at your feet and you don't even know who she is, man. How embarrassing, Jesus. And he starts to pity Jesus in his heart. And he starts to go, man, I thought you were a prophet. You don't know anything. And Jesus perceives his thought and looks at him and says, uh, and the Bible says, and perceiving his thoughts, Jesus said, if you're ever reading the New Testament and read and Jesus is perceiving their thoughts, think to yourself, it's about to go down. <laughs> and Jesus perceived his thoughts and said, hey, Simon, can I tell you a story? Simon goes, yes, teacher, tell me a story. He says, there's these two guys that owe money to a money lender. One of the most 500, one of the most 50. But look at me, Simon. Neither of them can pay. Simon, no one can pay. The debt is too great. Whether it's 50 or 500 or 5 or 5,000, nobody can pay. And the guy absolves all of their debt. Who do you think loves more? And Simon in his heart goes, I know what you're doing to me. You're trying to say I'm the guy with 50 and she's the, she's the girl with 500. And I don't really like where this is going, Jesus. So I suppose, since I'm on the spot in my house here, I suppose it was the one that owed more. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's true. It's more than you suppose. But what's really happening underneath all this and why the Pharisees are so difficult in this story is because they are looking at Jesus and they're essentially saying to Jesus, hey, be careful, Jesus, you can't do that. Who owes more? 50, 500, everyone's absolved. And Simon in his heart's going, you are starting to mess with the foundations of everything we stand on. Be careful. 
It's as almost as if the Pharisees are saying, hey, Jesus, I need to remind you in this moment, God belongs to the saints, to the righteous ones, to the spiritual Navy SEALs. And Jesus is coming along going, hey, Simon, I need to tell you something. God belongs to the sinners. And that is radical. It is overwhelming in this moment that God does not belong to the saints. He belongs to the sinners. And the Pharisees get mad. And it's almost like they come to him and they go, that's illegal, Jesus, and you should know better. And I was reading this this week, and I started thinking about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and my favorite scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you guys watched this before? Uh, it's amazing. If you haven't, like, go, and you'll probably become a Christian afterwards. It's amazing. <laughs> so there's a scene in the movie where Edmund, Edmund is the traitor. He's the one that's betrayed his family and given over to the White Witch, where he has been rescued out of the castle, and he is with Aslan. Aslan is the lion who's the Jesus character, and the White Witch is the the devil character, if you will. And Edmund has been rescued away and he's next to Aslan. But the white witch comes storming up to Aslan in the scene in the movie. And she's very, very aggressive and very proud. And she goes to Aslan and says, hey, Aslan, you can't do that. You can't just take him away and forgive him, Aslan. You know the rules. And here's the moment where, where the white witch looks at Aslan and says, don't you know what the deep magic says about this? And Aslan stands up and he roars at the white witch and she like falls back. And this moment, like I start crying every time my daughter's like, why are you crying? I'm like, leave me alone, kid. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Aslan stands up and he roars and she falls down and he looks at her and he says, don't you tell me about the deep magic. I was there when it was written. And this is the picture of the Old Testament law. But the white witch comes to Aslan and goes, what about the law, Aslan? You just can't let him off the hook like that. And this Pharisee goes to Jesus and goes, what about the law, Jesus? You can't just let her off the hook like that. What about the deep magic? And Jesus is like, oh, don't worry about the deep magic. I actually wrote the deep magic, and I'm going to fulfill the law to the extent by which every bit of it is done. Therefore, as I am the law forgiver, I can be the sin. Sorry, as I am the law fulfiller, I can be the sin Forgiver and understanding that Jesus has done everything necessary to fulfill the law authorizes him to do everything available to give you the forgiveness of sins. And this is what happens in the story. And what Jesus is essentially saying is because I've completely fulfilled the law, I can turn to this woman and give her unmerited favor. Because I have done all of the things necessary to merit favor before God, I am qualified to turn and look at her and offer her unmerited favor. This is Jesus introducing the most significant Christian doctrine, and it's a scandal. It's the doctrine of unmerited favor. Or to say it even more plainly, it's the doctrine of grace. It's Jesus saying, because I fulfilled the law, I can offer her the forgiveness of sins. And so to go back to the beginning of this, what do you do about your past? What do you do about your failure? What do you do about your sin? Here's my answer. And here's what I think Jesus' answer is. You bet your life and your eternity on God's grace, not your good works. What do you do about your shame and your failure and your guilt? You bet your life and your eternity on God's unmerited favor not your good works. Why do you do that? How do you do that? You do that because your sin is no match for God's grace. Your sin is no match for God's grace. But your sin is an overwhelming match for your good works. 
but your sin is no match for God's grace. In Titus chapter three, it says he saved us not because of our righteous things that we had done, but because of his grace. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Ephesians chapter two says, uh, for by grace we've been saved through faith and this is not of yourself, it's the gift of God so that no one, uh, not of works so that no man sh- may boast. When Jesus offers us grace, he's offering us a new way of life, a new way of understanding the world, a new way of dealing with our shame, a new way of understanding sin, a new way to operate in this world and because he is the law fulfiller, he can be the sin forgiver and he offers this unmerited favor and it blows everybody away. So there's a couple things that happen in this passage regarding grace. And one of them is that God's grace is inviting to the unrighteous, but threatening to the self-righteous. In this passage, God's grace is inviting to the unrighteous, but threatening to the self-righteous. Because of what's happening in the story, it kind of presupposes the fact that everybody in their self is dead in their sins. That coming into this world, you were born into sin and you have to manage and ask yourself, what am I going to do with that? And you don't even realize that. It's even worse that you came into this world with an innate and insatiable desire for things that bring death. And if your temptation is to see your unrighteousness and respond with self-righteousness, then you miss it. And a good question you might ask yourself is, how do you respond when unrighteous people are, uh, are forgiven? Like, do you find yourself judgmental of those? Do you find yourself celebrating? If you find yourself unable to celebrate when someone else receives the grace of God, you are probably struggling with self-righteousness. And if you start to judge people like that person's too far from God, you are probably struggling with self-righteousness. Or if you start to think to yourself, I hope God doesn't forgive that person, you're probably struggling with self-righteousness because it, it threatens self-righteous people. That's what God's grace does. And the next thing it does is that God's grace has a pattern of inviting the one who was not invited. God's grace always has this pattern. What's so fascinating about Jesus is that people who were nothing like him, they they liked him and they were drawn to him. The worst people in the world at that time were drawn to Jesus. And I know that's frustrating for us as a church because oftentimes the worst people in our cities and our campuses aren't drawn to our church, but they were absolutely drawn to Jesus. You never had to invite people to church if Jesus was preaching. You never had to invite people to your party if Jesus was going to be there. He was drawn to, uh, to others and they were drawn to him. And let me just lovingly say, if, you, if you're here and you have a dark past and you have sin, you have shame, you have struggles, one of the most unbelievable things about Jesus is how approachable he was for people with dark past. How approachable he was. He, he was the person that walked in the most authority. And usually people that have authority are unbelievably unapproachable. But Jesus walked in all authority and also walked in all approachability. But not only does grace do that, it's, it, it's fundamentally understood in this way that God's grace is not earned, it's offered. And that's the point in the story where you and I have to interact with how are we going to respond to this? Because God's grace is never something that we earn and we fight for, but it's something that is offered and done on our behalf. Or to say it another way, everything that needed to be done for your salvation has been done. Therefore, nothing can be added to your salvation. Jesus' final words, some of his final words on the cross being, it is finished. What is finished? Your attempts to save yourself are finished. Your attempts at measuring up before God are finished. 
the bondage you feel from the shame and guilt and frustration, that can be finished. The times that you try uh, to, to make things right after you've made things wrong, that can be finished. And the way it's finished is not by earning something, but by receiving what's been earned on your behalf. We talk about this all the time. Good works didn't save you. And honestly, that's not fully true because good works did save you, but it just wasn't your good works. Good works absolutely saves you. You were saved by good works. It just wasn't your good works. It was Jesus's good works accredited to you, given to you, imputed to you, handed to you, and because it's offered to you, then you are received, and you are saved by receiving good works. It's just not your own. And then lastly, I hope this makes sense, that God's grace is the assurance of your salvation, not your good works. Or to say it differently, there is no assurance if your salvation is based on your good works. There is no assurance that you're saved if you're saved by being good enough. Because who in the world is the standard for that? Who's the standard? Most of us in this room would go, hey, can I just get by by being like a little better than Hitler? Like, is that good enough? Can, can, I, can I do better than like Stalin and be in? Could that give me the assurance of salvation? No one in this room is like, I choose Mother Teresa to pair my life against. No one's picking Martin Luther King Jr. No one's picking the disciples. No one's picking Paul. Because in that moment you go, oh, I didn't know we were doing Paul. I thought we were doing Hitler. <laughs> Come on, guys. There is no assurance that you're doing enough if the assurance is from your own good works. But if this thing was offered to you and gifted to you and given to you and everybody can't pay, Paul can't pay, Mother Teresa can't pay, Martin Luther King Jr. can't pay, Stalin can't pay, Hitler can't pay, nobody can pay, then there is an overwhelming sense of assurance recognizing that your salvation is based on what you believe God has done on your behalf, not what you believe you have done for your behalf. So there's no assurance if it's on you. But God's grace is the assurance. And it's so assuring that Luke, in, in this last little part of the story, he says that Jesus looked at this woman and says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And this word peace, this final word of the story, is the word shalom. And we don't talk a lot about this kind of peace, but what this peace meant, it was thorough and it was holistic. And this word shalom is the word they used to talk about the Garden of Eden when sin hadn't even entered the world yet. What was the state of the garden? The state was shalom. What that meant was there is no hostility between me and God. There's no hindrance between me and God. There's no barriers between me and God. There is perfect peace between me and God. And Luke comes along and goes, that's what is offered when you receive the grace of God. The shalom, the never-ending peace of God. And so let me geek out on you for a second. In the Greek, this, this terminology is the perfect tense verbal form. Perfect tense verbal form. That's the Greek that is used in this phrase, your sins are forgiven, now go in peace. Now why that is so significant is because the perfect tense verbal form is not used all the time. But when it is used, it is so significant because here's what it means. The perfect tense verbal form means that there is an action that happened in the past. An action that happened in the past. That had results that, that changed that, that, that abided into a state of being all, all future things. So one more time. An action that happened in the past, which results that abided into your new reality that stayed that way for all eternity. So what Jesus is doing in this passage 
is he's saying what used to be the perfect tense verbal form in your life was shame and guilt and failure that happened in the past that now serves as the abiding reality for all eternity. And Jesus says, I want to give you a new reality. I want to give you a new perfect tense verbal form that you can have the peace of God with no hostility that happened in your past and now it's the abiding reality for all eternity. I would like, this is what Jesus says, I would like to exchange for all time your guilt and shame for glory and grace. Will you trade me? Perfect tense verbal form. I know this used to be your past, guilt and shame. And I know that shame and guilt are the abiding reality of your future. And you feel like that's going to be the way it is forever. But I have a new perfect tense verbal form for you. That if you will take the grace and the glory of God, that will happen in your past. It will be the new abiding reality for all eternity. Receive the shalom, the no hostility, no barriers, no more struggle between us. We are now in union with one another. And that is your new abiding reality. Because your sin is no match for God's grace. It's no match. But this is the point of the sermon where everybody goes, I, I've heard that before. Or, man, that's interesting. Or, I, I still don't know if I believe that. Or, there's something inside of us that still really struggles with this. Something inside of us. And I, I don't know what to make you feel. I don't know what to make you believe. But what's happening in this moment is us liking to hang on to our guilt instead of taking our guilt to God. And so we've tried to create a really specific way to preach these sermons for you to, to, to connect with this. And we've said reject, receive, and respond every single week. So here's as clearly as I can say what we want you to do from this sermon. Number one, reject your self-righteous attempts to heal your unrighteousness. Reject your self-righteous attempts to heal your unrighteousness. Receive the good news that your sin is no match for God's grace. And then respond by guiding your guilt to the grace of God. Day after day after day, take your guilt and guide it to the grace of God day after day after day after day. And if you don't guide your guilt back to God, then you will find yourself where we started today. You will find yourself slipping back into self-righteousness because you go, I have all this guilt. The only way I can get rid of it is by doing and being good enough. Or you'll find yourself just struggling with unrighteousness going, I have all this guilt, but I can't fix it. Nobody can fix it. Everything's bad. This whole thing's the worst. The question in your life is, what are you going to do with your guilt? If you guide your guilt back to God, then what happens in that moment is you get to experience what she experienced, which is a love being awakened in your life because of the scandal of grace. A love being awakened. Did you hear that part of the story where Jesus says she was, she, she was awakened to love because of this forgiveness? And when you are awakened to love, it gets socially inappropriate. You guys know that like when we gather together and sing, like grown men like cry and lift their hands, like that's socially inappropriate. Why? Because there's been a love awakened in them. And there's an affection to that. And, and women uh, cry and they lift their hands. And maybe people go, that's more normal, Josh. I don't know the rules on that one. But I do know that there's a love that's being awakened in them. And this is what it looks like. And maybe it's because I'm getting older. I just don't care anymore about social inappropriateness. Like, go hang out with your grandpa and you realize he ain't worried about it. <laughs> and maybe he's got it figured out. Especially if he's a godly grandpa. He's like not worried about it because he's going home. And he's like, man, this life is the worst. And he just operates in this world, taking his guilt to God and operating with a certain sense of social uh, inappropriateness that he's not worried about. But the reason this is so important for us 
And the reason that this whole sermon, I think this whole story is included in the Bible, is is that we have to recognize God's grace is necessary because you can't pay what you owe. Did you catch that in the story? Josh, why does all this matter? Why is all this about? What is all this for? This is God moving into a moment and moving into our lives, lovingly looking at us and going, you can't pay what you owe. And trust me, you owe. And I owe. Everybody owes. Whether it's one, two, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, five thousand. Everybody owes and nobody can pay. But praise God. There is one who should be collecting the debts who has said, I've made a way possible to absolve your debts. But it's not by giving your sin a pass. It's by putting your sin on my son and allowing my son to absolve and pay the debts of everybody collectively. Because what the law does to us in our condemnation, he went under that and he took our place. And because that's true, Jesus has paid what you owed. And now he turns and says, would you like to come under the coverage that I offer? And that's great news. That's great news. And I don't know what that does for you internally. I know for me, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this great news? I heard a really helpful picture one time about the gospel. It's it's like this is the gospel. Picture yourself in in a time way back in the day when armies went to war and there was no technology and there was one army that was incredibly powerful and it was destroying all these other towns. And this one town knew that this army was going to come and destroy it. And there was nothing they can do because if this army made its way, it was just going to destroy you. But a messenger came to that town and said, I have good news. While that opposing army was far away, Another king who was stronger than that army overtook them. And now they're not coming to destroy the town. And you might ask, well, what is that town supposed to do with this? There was an opposing army that was coming to destroy them. But while that army was on the way, another king went and intercepted that army and overtook them and overpowered them. What is that town supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? And as simple as... This guy who was explaining it could explain it. He says, you're supposed to believe the news and celebrate the king. So what do you do with the grace of God? You believe the news that you couldn't pay what you owed, but praise God, it's been paid on your behalf. And you celebrate the king who intercepted the foreign army before they could get to you. And you live in a state of an awakened love. And you live your life in that way. And you take your guilt to God day after day because your guilt is hindering your prayers. Your guilt is hindering your worship. If you're operating with guilt, you don't want to share the gospel. You don't want to go play in church. You don't want to do any of that stuff. But if your guilt is gone, then it's game on. You're willing to pray. You're willing to worship. You're willing to share the gospel. You don't care at all because you're like, hey, best news in the world. My guilt is gone. I don't care what you think of me anymore. It's as if I'm 70. It's amazing. The only way we change the city, the only way we change this campus, the only way we change the Northwest is through being a good news people whose guilt is gone. Who looks at sinners all around us and says, come and meet the one who takes away guilt. Come and meet the one who takes away guilt. And if our guilt is gone, and if the debt we couldn't pay has been paid, 
then we are the kind of people who can change the world. Not because we've done it, but because we have news of the one who's done it. So believe the news. Celebrate the king. And live a good news life because your guilt is gone. May we be courageous enough to do that. And may we be courageous enough to live in that. Because that's who God has called us to be. A grace-filled people. I want to pray that we could do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, that our sin is no match for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to be honest with us. You love us enough to say, hey, listen, everyone has a debt and no one can pay. And so the only way that we can respond to the debt we owe is by believing that you've paid it on our behalf. And so God, I, I don't know what it takes tonight, but I pray that that would be awakened in us. And if we've heard that a thousand times, God, I pray that falls fresh on us tonight. And if we've never heard that before, I pray that awakens us uh, to believe tonight. Because ultimately what you were asking us, God, is not to have a life of good works, but to have a life that trusts your good works. To put our faith in your grace. So God, tonight my prayer for our church is that we would put our faith in your grace. And whatever guilt we're struggling with, whatever shame, whatever stuff's going on, we would guide that guilt back tonight to Christ. In this story, this woman literally takes her guilt to the feet of Jesus. I pray we would do that tonight. We would take our guilt to Christ. And we would receive again the grace that you offer. I pray that we're brokenhearted over our sin like this woman in the story was. And we're willing to do what's socially inappropriate if necessary to get to Jesus. So God, may we be a church that is marked by good news. May we be a church that believes the news. And may we be overwhelmed by the grace you offer us. May we never lose our wonder when it comes to grace. As we worship now, as we take communion soon, God, would we just be stirred up by your grace? And if there's any of among us that don't believe, God, would you awaken belief in us tonight? Pray that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.